Well, this morning, uh, we come to our last study in this section of Samuel that we've been working through. So believe it or not, next week we'll actually be in the first half of chapter 16. Uh, so we continue to, to make it through the book. Um, but we've taken this extra time here as we've been reminding ourselves to deal with some significant difficulties that are present in chapter 15. Uh, there are four of them. We've now worked through three of them. We have one left for today. Uh, the first difficulty, if you remember, was the, the glowing report of Saul's kingship there at the end of chapter 14. That was very difficult to deal with, especially uh, given what we've already known about Saul and what we read about him in chapter 15. Why did we have that glowing report? So we had to work through that. And then from there, we have the uh, very, uh, very dark um, military mission that God sets Saul to. Uh, we needed to understand what was going on there. The Amalekites are to be totally destroyed, so we had to uh, think about that. And then last week, we worked through the third difficulty, which revolved around the Lord changing His mind or the Lord regretting. So in this passage in verse 11, we read that the Lord regretted making Saul king. Same thing down in verse 35. Uh, but then right there in Samuel's final uh, declaration to, to Saul, he says that the Lord does not change his mind. The Lord does not regret. So we had to sort through what does it mean that the Lord does and the Lord doesn't? Is this a contradiction? Uh, which obviously ultimately it's not, uh, but we needed to think through that. Uh, so those were the first three, and that means that we're left with one more difficulty to, to sort through. And the difficulty we're left sorting through today is the fact that Saul uh, confesses that he has sinned. He asks to be forgiven of his sin, uh, but Saul doesn't receive pardon. Uh, in fact, uh, down at the very bottom, there's, a, there's actually a Hebrew idiom that the English, English translation of our Bibles miss, but scholars point this out. When, when Saul asks Samuel to go back with him, and then Saul says, I won't, but then it looks in our English Bibles like he, like he will go back with him. Uh, there's actually an idiom there, scholars point out, that, that it, it is an idiom for abandonment. Saul, Saul, uh, Samuel never goes back with Saul. Saul is actually abandoned by Samuel. And, and we find at the end of these things then that Saul is not actually forgiven uh, from what, for what he's done here in this passage, but instead he's, he's in a sense abandoned. By the time we're halfway tr through chapter 16, we see Saul has an evil spirit uh, that's been given to him, so things are going from, uh, from bad to worse. And, uh, and this, this means we, we have to sort through what's going on here because, uh, because we have in our mind uh, the, the narrative of First and Second Samuel, uh, remembering that it includes the story of David. And the story of David, of course, is, is a wonderful story, but at the same time, there is that whole very dark episode around David and Bathsheba, where David ultimately steals the wife of one of his best soldiers while that soldier is away fighting, which David should have been doing and wasn't. He was at home relaxing in his castle. So David steals the wife of one of his best soldiers. He sets up an elaborate scheme to actually have that soldier killed on the battlefield while he's fighting honorably. And, uh, and then be able to take this lady for his own wife. David, David does all this. So he's violating Israel. He's violating this lady and his adulterous relationship. All of this stuff is going on. And ultimately, David comes to a recognition of his sin, and he's forgiven. In fact, we read a part of his prayer asking for forgiveness in our confession today from Psalm 51. And, and, and David, David does all this, finding ultimately a, a reconciled peace with God. Obviously, there's consequences because of what he's done, but he is forgiven. He's not rejected by God as king. Here's Saul rejected as king. Saul asked for forgiveness, and he doesn't receive it. And what, what does Saul do on the surface level of this passage? Well, Saul, on the surface level, he just doesn't quite carry out all the way a, a really dark military expedition that God has called him to. 
David, David, I mean, the list of stuff David's done wrong is so, 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 so long. We look at what Saul did here and we think, well, he didn't obey all the way, but I mean, it was a pretty dark mission, right? And so we have to come to terms with this. Why isn't Saul forgiven? Why do things just go from bad to worse for Saul here? When in the case of David, right in the course of this narrative, David apparently has done much worse, or so it would seem, and David receives forgiveness. There's this tension that's here. And so, so in our text today, we need to sort out, why can Saul be in this position of, of plainly asking to be pardoned? He asks God's prophet for pardon, and he doesn't, he doesn't ultimately receive it. And so that's the question we have to deal with as we, as we study this this morning. Uh, so we'll re- revisit these verses one last time for this, for this purpose. And we'll gather our, our studies this morning under, under uh, a profile of the unforgiven king. I was trying to think up a, a title for this. What can we call this? This is a profile of the un- unforgiven king. Later on, we'll have a profile of the forgiven king with David when we get into 2 Samuel. Uh, but here, here we have an unforgiven king. And the word profile seemed appropriate to use in this, in this context, uh, mainly because I, I, I was reading in the New York Times yesterday, and the New York Times, they have part of their world section where they run what they call Saturday profiles. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's uh, things from around the world. It's things that they usually deem fairly positive uh, that different people are doing around the world. But yesterday's was a fairly disturbing uh, profile about a filmmaker who was, who was creating propaganda in Japan to encourage assisted suicide among the aging population, some of these things, it was very dark. And as I was, re- as I was reading that, I thought to myself, that's a, that's a dark profile. Not unlike Saul's profile is a dark profile. So that we, can, we can use that word for our title. What we have is a profile here of a, of a dark situation, a king who uh, was initially commissioned by God to serve faithfully and ultimately proves to be a failure in that. Uh, so it's, it's on the darker side of things, to be sure. But a profile does help us see things more clearly. It shows us what's going on. It communicates information to us in a biographical kind of way. And certainly there's lessons uh, to be learned as we study it. So uh, we're, going to, we're going to get into the passage today. Um, we're actually going to look at this under three, three words. I'll give them to you if it's helpful. The first word we're going to use to navigate all of this is violation. So that'll be verses 1 to 12. We're going to think about violation there. And then in verses 13 to 23, we'll think about confrontation. That's where, that's where Samuel will confront Saul. And then finally, in the last section, so verses uh, 24 to the end, we'll think about um, contrition. Though we have to, if we're writing it in your notes, you have to write contrition question mark. That's, that's, that's that final piece there. Is, is, is contrition, is this humble, contrite heart something we're really seeing going on there on the part of Saul? Um, so, we'll, we'll run through things in that way today. Uh, we'll start verses 1 to 13. You can look at that. Turn there. I'd encourage you to because we have to move at a good clip. Uh, and so, it'll help to keep an eye on the passage. Verses 1 to 13. And, and we're, we're immediately going to ask the question, what exactly is the sin that Saul is guilty of? What, what is the violation that's going on here? That's important to figure out because, because on the one hand, we see Saul's not forgiven by the end. So, we need to sort out, is this violation that Saul engages in such that it is unforgivable? Has, has he done something so horrific that he, he just can't be forgiven because of what he's done? So, we have to sort out what exactly has gone on here. And, and if you remember... Uh, From the very beginning of this section and all through the chapter, there's the repetition of that Hebrew word for voice or sound all the way through the passage. It's the same Hebrew word. 
um, which, which is a way for the author to get our attention centered on something in particular in the narrative. And that, and that particular element that we're meant to pay attention to is that Saul is not paying attention to the sound of the Lord's voice. He's not paying attention to what God says. So, so in verses 1 and 2, we have Samuel the prophet coming with the Lord's directive for Saul. And, and Samuel says in, in a very literal way, if we're going to translate it very literally, in verse 1 he says, Now listen to the sound of the words of the Lord. You remember that, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Listen to the sound of the words of the Lord. Um, the, the root for that Hebrew word sound or voice, it's repeated eight times in this chapter. So that's the narrator's way of kind of highlighting things here for us. But even in verse 1, we get that there's this extra uh, import, extra seriousness behind what, what Samuel is saying to Saul and that he's addressing Saul as he, as he knows Saul to be one who's often disengaged in terms of zealous obedience and righteous diligence as king. He knows this to be true about Saul from Saul's uh, prior history. So Samuel's saying to him, Saul, you, you need to listen carefully to God and you need to do what he says. He's emphasizing this in his, in his statement to Saul and then he gives this directive. So Saul is to lead uh, Israel in battle against the Amalekites and bring about the total destruction of the Amalekites, which we spent some time working through uh, a few weeks ago, <coughs> excuse me, in terms of what that means. But, but Saul is to lead Israel in the total destruction of the Amalekites. That's what God says to do. Everything is to die. And what happens? Well, um, Saul seems to start off okay if you look at verse 4, except that by the time we get into verse 7, uh, while Saul is, is victorious in his fight against the Amalekites, technically, I mean, he chases them away, he runs them off, and so on. In verse 8, he actually captures Agag, the king of, of the Amalekites, and keeps him alive. And then in verse 9, we're told that Saul and his troops not only spared Agag, but they also spared the best of the animals and everything else. And there's actually a little emphasis there in Hebrew that is, it can be easy to miss, but, but there is a singular verb attached there. So it's like Saul and the troops, but what's really being done is attributed to a singular individual. Who's really responsible for everything going on right there? There's a little grammar clue. It's not ultimately the troops who are to blame. Saul as the leader is going to be the one who's responsible for this. So, so that's going on in verse 9. They're sparing the, the best of things uh, to bring back. And then after, after all that has taken place, in verse 10, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel again. And, and the Lord says, I regret I made Saul king. Why? Well, he's turned away from following me, and he hasn't carried out my instructions. In a more literal sense, that last section read, my word he hasn't established, or he hasn't run with my word. Okay. So, so on the other side of all that's taken place, the Lord comes to Samuel, the prophet, and, and he outlines Saul's violation. It's, it's not just that Saul didn't do things all the way, he, he did do some destroying after all, uh, but it's, 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 it's not that Saul did just a halfway job. The bigger problem is that the Lord says Saul's turned away from me and he basically hasn't made firm what I said he was to do. So, so in short, the Lord says, I spoke, Saul went the other direction. That's what's happened here. And then in the rest of verse 11, we have Samuel, the prophet. He's angered by this. In fact, we're told he cries out to the Lord all night long. And we're not told what he cried out to the Lord uh, specifically 
with regard to all night long, but of course we know it's Saul's sin and it's caused Samuel to have this, this visceral, emotional, burdensome, all-night response to what's going on. So Saul is, Samuel is, is deeply burdened by this. And I just want you to file that away for a moment because that's going to become important a little later on. Samuel's bur- all night long, he's burdened by this. Um, the Lord regrets making Saul king. All of this is taking place. So Saul's sin has caused this relational uh, and, and a heavy reaction, both with Samuel the prophet and with God himself. God is regretting making Saul king. Samuel's burdened by this. Keep that in mind. Um, but, but, but in this description in general, we're actually brought to see the nature of Saul's violation, at least in the, in the immediate divine diagnosis of what's gone on here. The, the, the Lord has said one thing, and Saul has turned away from the Lord and not followed exactly what God said. So, the Lord tells, tells this to Samuel, and Samuel, uh, he, he responds immediately by going to look for Saul the next day. He rises early. He's going to look for Saul in verse 12, uh, but, but it takes a while to find Saul. Well, why is that? That's because in the meantime, after finishing this, this episode of sinning, Saul has decided, decided to build a monument to himself over in Carmel. So wouldn't a statue of me be nice right about now? So that's what Saul has gone off to do. Usually after battle victory, we know this from 1 Samuel chapter 7, after battle victory, what do you do? You build an altar to the Lord. Thank you for saving us and giving us victory in battle. Saul's run these, uh, these folks off. He's had victory in battle, so to speak, and what does he decide to do? I'm going to build a monument to me. Look at what, literally, to my own hand. Look at what my hands have done, is what he said. And as we think about all of this with regard to, to Saul's violation, Really what we have here is, is a very plain and clear view of, of what sin looks like, even just in general terms. And this is, this is going to be important. So, so, so God speaks to Saul, and Saul decides to go in the other direction and ignore God's word. And instead, we find Saul setting up a monument to himself. And ultimately what we find here is, is basically a, a definition of sin 101 kind of thing. And it's, and it's a two-part thing. We actually have this if we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember the Garden of Eden, the serpent comes to the woman, and what's the temptation question? The temptation question is, did God really say? The same word of the Lord question happening here. It's the word of God that's questioned and ultimately rejected. And then with that... Um, we have this final capitulation to sin in the Garden of Eden, and humanity actually decides they should be the, one who, the ones who are in charge. That's what we have there in Genesis 3, where we're told the woman saw that the tree was good for food and so on, that she wasn't supposed to eat. In, in, in the Garden, those two things are happening in that first sin. The Word of God is disregarded, so the woman takes and eat. And in the Garden, the Lord is to be the one who's over all things, but instead the woman ultimately is taking divine prerogative to herself. And we're showing that there because so far in the Genesis account, who sees and says things are good? Genesis 1, God saw that it was good. Day after day of creation, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. In the Garden, Eve says, I'm going to disregard the Word of God. I'm actually going to be the one who sees and says what's good. So, so, so you have the disregard of the word of the Lord, and you have the elevation of self uh, going on here. And Saul does the exact same thing. Not only does he disregard God's word, <coughs> excuse me, but when Samuel goes looking for him, he's out doing what? He's out building a monument to himself there in verse 12. So, so he's disregarded God's word, he's rejected God as God, and then like the situation in the garden, Saul's saying in effect, I'm not going to build a monument to the Lord for helping me in battle, I will build a monument to me. So, so in this sense, we have a very 
textbook case of what, we, what, what the Scriptures refer to typically as, as transgression or human rebellion. This is exactly what sin's violations against God look like, almost in, in blueprint form. God says, do this, and instead of obeying all the way, we do our own thing and determine to be in charge of ourselves. This, this is sin <coughs> by its very definition. So, so I reject what God says, and I am determined to live as my own little monarch. That's what it is. Whether that's rejecting God's word and then calling good what God has called forbidden in the garden, or whether it's doing what Saul does here, um, ultimately is to reject God's word and live as my own uh, little monarch, my own little king of my kingdom of of one or however many people I affect or whatever it is. This is sin in its, if we can put it this way, in its purest form. It is human sin. Um, This is actually encapsulated in in William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus. And and I've read this to you before, I'm sure, but it's worth repeating. Um, he, was, he was a 19th century poet. He's actually a one-legged poet. Um, so the one that Robert Louis Stevenson is said to have patterned Long John Silver after, as a little literature fact. Uh, but but he, was, he, was, he was a dark-hearted man. And listen, listen to this poem that he, that he wrote. He says this, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horrors of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. King Saul would have loved that poem. We as humanity, we, we, we love that poem. In our hearts, this is our condition, that, that God made us. He's spoken. He's revealed Himself to us in the grandeur of creation, in the person of His Son, in the special revelation of His Word. God has made Himself known to us. And instead of listening to what He says, what we long to do, what we strive to do, is go on after building monuments to ourselves. Look at me, look at how wonderful I am. I am the one who's going to be the master of my soul. That's humanity's sin. Now, why is it important to see all of this when we think about Saul's violation here? Because when we think about Saul's violation, we're, we're brought back to our initial concern. Saul is not granted forgiveness when he asks for it. And so why is it important to think through what's being, what's being shown us here about Saul's sin? Well, we have to start, the reason this is important is we have to start by seeing that Saul's sin is sin in its, if we can use the word, in its purest form. What's going on with Saul's sin is not some unique brand of transgression that is ultimately unforgivable. What's going on with Saul's sin is actually the most, if we could put it this way, normal, natural, regular way we see sin playing out in the hearts of people. I don't want to do what God says and I'm going to be in charge of myself. Thank you very much. Saul's sin is not some special unforgivable brand. Saul's sin is just plain old human sin, plain and simple. This is what God says. I'm not going to do it. It's very, it's very straightforward in that sense, which is something important for us to note because the whole biblical witness is to the fact that the God who we serve is the God who forgives this kind of sin. And so we have to be very clear on this, on this point. Jesus came and bled and died for us on the cross precisely because we've all solved things up, just like Saul does here. This is what we do. 
I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to be my own little king. Thank you very much. This is human sin. This is what Jesus came to save us from. From all the things, all the foul thinking, sour detractions, selfish, miserly, miserly things we can do. All of the things that are contrary to God's good way of life are encapsulated in this. And we need to know that forgiveness is there for sinners. As, as the Apostle Paul will say to, to Timothy, he says, the say, saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Saul, Paul, the apostle, recognizes his own unique kind of sinning, referencing his murdering of Christians and so on before he became converted. So, so, so all that is very important because we can read this and we think, what if I've done what Saul's done? You know, if, if I've done what Saul's done, then maybe I will find myself in a place of not being able to be forgiven of the things that have gone on. I mean, I know my history. I know the things I struggle with privately, publicly, whatever it may be. Maybe I'm finding myself in a category like Saul where I can't be forgiven. And part of the answer to that question is, yes, we do find ourselves in a category like Saul. We all, this is the big sin category. Saul is doing what sin is in a sense, perfectly. He's defining it perfectly for us according to the Scriptures. God says this, I'm going to do that, and I'd like to be in charge of myself. That is sin 101, and that's what Saul does. But what's helpful for us to recognize from the very beginning is that is also the exact situation that the Lord sent Jesus into the world to forgive us of. That this is the good news of the Bible, is that that is what we get forgiven of. So as we come to this, we can check off the box that says, maybe it's because Saul sinned in a particular kind of way that he doesn't get forgiven. But that's not what's going on here. Saul sinned in a sin 101 kind of way. Straight up, standard, run-of-the-mill, human rebellion, sin. This is what Saul did. This is what we do. This is what David did. This is, this is sin as it goes with humanity. And that's just helpful for us to know as we go forward because what we understand then from that is if this is sin 101, then just sinning against God is not something that removes me from His grace, but actually, as we see in the gospel, it is the prerequisite for His grace. The only prerequisite for His grace is saying, I, I need it. I need what the Lord promises in terms of forgiveness. And so, and so this is just here as an important reminder that, that Saul's sin in, in, in its most basic form is basically, is basically sin 101 as we, as we understand it. So we can be relieved from thinking maybe it's particular. And maybe I've done something particular that the Lord won't forgive me of because it's, it's strange in the way Saul's sin is strange here. Nope, Saul's sin's not strange. Regular old, plain, normal rebelling against God is what's going on. Okay, so, so, if, so if that's there, then we need to figure out what, 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 is, uh, what is playing out because Saul, Saul isn't forgiven. So that we're, not, we're not to an answer to our question yet. Uh, so, so we keep going. We move from violation in verses 1 to 12 then to confrontation in verses 13 to 23. Uh, Samuel goes and he confronts Saul. Uh, so verse 12, he goes looking for him, but Saul's off building a monument to his own hands. And then, and then uh, in verse 13, Samuel finally catches up with him. And Saul greets Samuel in a, in a very spiritual and jovial fashion, doesn't he? Um, now, we, we can't forget that Samuel's been up all night, overwhelmed by anger, concern, anguish over all that's going on here. Samuel has not slept. He finally finds Saul, and Saul says to him, May the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Right? It's amazing that Samuel didn't just give him one swift kick in the shin to start things off. Right? He doesn't, though. Samuel begins his confrontation with, with a question. Actually, he's going to have a few questions for Saul. So verse 14, Samuel asks the question. Actually, I'll read it a little more literally for you so you catch what's going on. Samuel says, what is the sound of the sheep and the sound of the cattle that I hear? That's that voice sound word again. 
That's the word we have repeated all throughout. So, so Saul was to listen to the sound of the word of the Lord and completely wipe out the Amalekites and all they had. And, and Samuel shows up and he says, I'm hearing sound, but this is not the sound we're supposed to be listening to. Samuel says, what's going on here? And Saul's approach in response is to adopt a three-part uh, get-out-of-trouble strategy in verse 15. So part one of this is he, is he, is he blame shifts. That's where he starts. Uh, the troops brought them. So he blames the troops. Uh, part two, he incorporates some false piety. He says, you know, actually what we've done is very religious. We've spared the best in order to sacrifice them. <coughs> Excuse me. Sacrifice them to the Lord your God. So, so we're not actually sinning, uh, Samuel. We've actually been very pious over here. And then part three of his strategy is, is uh, to actually pretend like he obeyed. So he said, we did destroy the rest. We did destroy the rest. So, so Saul can no doubt probably see from just Samuel's tired face that a nice God bless you and good morning isn't going to be enough to get him out of this one. And, uh, and Saul goes on the defensive. So he blame shifts. He says, they did it. He's got the false piety in here. You know, we did it just to sacrifice things to God. And then there's a pretense for obedience. Uh, the rest we did destroy. We knew, we knew the destroy thing was in there, so we did that a little bit too. To which Samuel replies in verse 16 um, with, with uh, an extremely short word to Saul. Stop. Just, just stop, stop it. Stop doing that, Saul. He says, let me tell you what the Lord said last night. So Samuel goes on to say that though you were once uh, not, not much, now you are the royal leader of God's people. And God said to do something, and you have a responsibility to do it, and you didn't do it. You didn't obey. So here comes Samuel's next confrontation question, uh, two of them actually in verse 19. He says, why didn't you obey, and then this is emphasized more in Hebrew, why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord, and why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in God's sight? So don't give me this garbage about the troops and sacrifice and pretending to obey. Why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? To which Saul replies in pretty much the exact same way again. Verse 20, he keeps pretending like he obeyed. I, I, I did obey. I brought back this king, but I destroyed everything else. Right? And then verse 21, he still blame shifts. It's the troops who took the plunder. Then in the rest of verse 21, he keeps running with this false piety thing. We're going to sacrifice it to, to the Lord after all. We're, we're very spiritual people over here, Samuel. I, I don't know why you're getting so worked up. We, we did keep some stuff, but, you know, we kept it to give it to God because, because we are spiritual. So, so Samuel confronts Saul on this sin, but Saul just digs in further. And so Samuel makes a statement he does there in verse 22 and 23. He asks another question. He says, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? So in other words, he's saying to Saul, don't, don't think that, that playing at the externals of religion is the same thing as actually doing what God says. His call, the Lord's call, is to obey him. The Lord's call is not to toss him a religious favor, to pacify him now and again. The Lord's call is to obey. You're to obey. Make no mistake, part obedience is no obedience. Halfway is no way. And in case Saul's not getting this, Samuel frames it out further. He says, let me just give you a comparison. He says, rebellion's like divination, a spiritual practice forbidden for, for Israelites. Rebellion is like divination and defiance, like wickedness and idolatry. So, so to go contrary to God's word in any way, to rebel against it or to defy God's word in any way, it is the same as just engaging in pagan practices around you where you just thumb your nose at God and do what you want. It's all ultimately a rejection of Him. 
And then Samuel says what he does there in verse 23, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. So here we have Samuel doing this work of confronting Saul on the true nature of sin because ultimately Saul doesn't still seem to get it. He's, he's content to obey in a, in a partial kind of way, which is still, Samuel is saying, still actually total rebellion. Partial obedience is no obedience. And, and then outsourcing the blame, of course, that, that can't possibly work on a God who sees our hearts. He knows what's going on. And, and, and it's just interesting. It's Father's Day, so we could bring this up as an illustration. It's interesting that this is the way we speak to our kids in parenting, isn't it? For our young kids. We talk about how obeying is, is right away and all the way and with a happy heart. We use that kind of language. And, and we need to use that kind of language, not because we, we care particularly about behavior modification in our children's lives, but because it's a heart thing. This is what it looks like to obey your parents when you're four, right away, all the way with a happy heart, because this is what it looks like to obey God when you're 40. Right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. This is, this is the important thing. Partway obedience is no way obedience. Partway is the same as rebellion, uh, Samuel is saying to him. So, so, so even just, just sitting with this allows us to take a reflective moment and consider the, the, the pressure that Samuel is putting on, on Saul here. But it puts some pressure on us too, just in terms of a matter of, of personal reflection. Because sitting under this, I, I do ask myself the question under the text. I'll give it to you so I, it doesn't have to bother me alone. But, but we can ask the question, is there an area of my life where I'm following Jesus halfway, convincing myself that I'm obeying all the way? It's very simple to find ourselves uh, kind of falling into these patterns where, like Saul, we can say, well, I've, I, you know, I've done some sacrificing over here. And I, you know, I have about 75% of the time, I'm really, I'm really doing these things over here that are, that are really pretty good. Uh, the rest of the time, I've got some other stuff going on, but, but, but I'm, I'm most of the way obeying. And this is a good reminder that the Lord sees the heart. Uh, while, while we struggle with sin and all of those things and we confess it and find forgiveness and all, all of the ways we speak about that, we also need to understand that we don't fool the Lord and we don't want to fool ourselves by thinking that a heart compelled by the love of Christ for us is a halfway obedient heart. There's a full obedience called for here as we follow the Lord and this is just a good reminder that we can check our hearts by these things. <coughs> we can ask ourselves if there's a kind of halfway obedience that's present in my life? Have I externalized some, some excuses and substitutes for outside acts of, or outside acts of piety uh, for a heart that's truly turned toward God? And, and ultimately, some, some part of the answer to that question is yes, we do do this. There's things I can do on the outside simply because they, they can make me feel better on the inside even though my heart not, might not be totally turned towards the Lord in them. And we need to just uh, take a moment, and the text like this helps us to recognize those kinds of things can creep in. It's not a particularly comfortable thing to think about, but it is important, and it's when we can ask uh, under, under, a text, under a text like this, is there an area where I'm following Jesus halfway? Um, but am I convincing myself it's all the way? These, these kinds of things can, can go on. And so, and so Saul brings us to that point. We ask that question there as Samuel presses on him. It's a big question. And, and interestingly, <coughs> excuse me, something of this truth <coughs> gets through to Saul. Because, because he does respond a little more honestly next. So, so verses 24 and 25, we move through this now. Violation, confrontation. Now there's this contrition. But you remember how we have to put a question mark after con contrition. Is, is it really? What, what's going on here with Saul in this next part? Now, Because if you look at verse 24, Saul starts saying some things that, that appear pretty good. So he uses all the right words. I've sinned. 
I've transgressed the Lord's command in your words, so I haven't obeyed God or His prophet. That's true. Saul speaks to the fact that he's, he's fallen short of the standard God has called him to. He's missed it. That's what the word here uh, for sin means. And then Saul, he doesn't just label things properly, but he even offers some insight into his own heart. In verse 24, he says, I did all these things. I didn't, I didn't obey God all the way. Ultimately, because I feared, the, I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. That's what the text says. So, so Saul didn't fear the Lord and obey the Lord's voice like Israel's kings were called to do. Instead, Samuel feared the people, or Saul feared the people and he obeyed their voice. Very insightful on the part of Saul to notice that about his own heart. And then Saul asked for forgiveness in verse 25. He says to Samuel, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. And Samuel's response does not seem to be the typical kindness we'd expect from your friendly local pastor. Because in verse 26, Samuel says, I will not return with you. And because you rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as king. Samuel turns to go as he does. Saul grabs the corner of his robe and it rips. Samuel takes that opportunity to have one final object lesson. He says, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. And then verse 29, <coughs> the Lord does not change his mind. That's where he says that. What's done is done. And then verse 30, verse 30, this is, this is very important actually. If you watch verse 30, this gives us a real window into what's going on in Saul's heart. Saul's used some good language. Saul's even admitted some personal uh, heartfelt realities. But in verse 30, notice what Saul says. Excuse me. Everything's fine. I'm, I'm going to make it through here. Saul says this. Listen, I have sinned. Good. That's good, good to admit. Please honor me. Now, let's just, let's just work this out for a minute by way of apology. When, I, when I've done something wrong in my marriage, which has happened twice, so, 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 so we just think in terms of apology. If, if I go to Julia and I say, I've sinned, I mean, I've, I've really messed things up in our relationship again, um, would you please honor me? But how, how is that going to go in my married life? That is going to be a total disaster in my married life. So you just, you just start, start working out how, how Saul is postured here. I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people. You know, Julie, I've really messed things up. If we could get in a public place and you could just talk about how wonderful I am as a person, that's what I'd like to do now just to express my repentance. I've sinned. Honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow and worship to the Lord your God. So, so, you, so you hear the, this priority reflected in this final plea from Saul, don't you? Honor me before the elders of my people. Come back with me. Um, this made me think, I think it's more than 20 years ago now, but Julia's uh, folks remodeled the medical office that they owned. And as they were doing that, <coughs> one of the guys who came in, he, uh, he was very excited to do some, some faux painting. I didn't know what faux painting was. At the time, you probably know what it is, but I guess faux painting is where you come in and you make the surface of something look like something it's not. So you paint it in such a way that it looks like marble when it's not really marble or something like this. And, and, and this is really what's going on here in Saul's, in Saul's confession here. He has this kind, of faux, this kind of faux repentance because in reading this statement, we see that instead of true contrition on the part of Saul, instead of true sorrow over his sin, uh, Saul's repentance is, is really ultimately uh, just, to, just to focus on the thing that's been right at the center the whole time. The closest thing Saul got to a genuine confession here is telling Samuel that he feared the people and obeyed their voice. That was an honest apprehension of his heart. But we read verse 30 and we still see what exactly is right at the center of Saul's concern still. Has anything changed? 
Is he really broken up about the fact that he's fearing people and obeying people rather than fearing the Lord and obeying the Lord? What is he really asking Samuel to do? He's asking Samuel to do the exact same thing that he's been running with the whole time. I need you to come back, Samuel, and worship the Lord with, I'll worship the Lord your God. That's going to look good, but you need to honor me before the people. I've got to save face in this whole thing. I need to make sure that my position is recognized and I'm still upheld in this posture before the people. My real concern is my appearance before others, not an actual posture of contrition before the Lord himself. Which, of course, doesn't impress Samuel at all. Samuel, we're told there, again, there's some, some language to, to work out, but Samuel doesn't return where Saul wants him to go. Instead, Samuel abandons him. He turns back from Saul. And then we're told Samuel goes to carry out what Saul should have done. He kills Agag, the king, and they never see each other again until the day of Samuel's death. They're, they're, they're done. The whole thing is over. But, but when we start to work out what's going on here, we can start to see the source ultimately of the fact that Saul is, is not a forgiven king. And what we, find is, that's what we find right at the center of what's going on with Saul is not the fact that he sinned some kind of unforgivable sin. What we find is going on with Saul is that he's actually not expressing any kind of true contrition, a truly repentant heart. He's still absolutely after as his main thing, the thing that's been separating him from God all this time. He hasn't come to God like David will do in Psalm 51, and you can read that again for homework this afternoon, but David comes and he says to God, a broken and a humble heart you will not despise. I've, I've sinned from birth since, and sin my mother conceived me. David says, I've been a total disaster before you, <coughs> and I know the only hope I have is if you're the one who cleanses me, if you're the one who purifies me, if you're the one who teaches me wisdom, I need you to take me and remake me into, a, in, into the person that you've called me to be. Saul doesn't say that at all. He says, Samuel, I would like to co-opt your prophetic ministry among the people, your prophetic popularity, and we need to make sure that I'm still high up on this pedestal that I've been working so hard uh, throughout all my kingship to build. And again, we come back to recognizing what really is going on in the heart of Saul. He's not a man who is <coughs> genuinely repentant. He is a man who is still completely consumed with a sense of self and wanting things to be going along in his own direction. And that's a critical lesson for us to learn if we're going to understand what it means to turn to Christ in a full kind of, in a full kind of repentance from the Scriptures. Because Jesus says in John chapter 6, anyone who comes to me, no one who comes to me will ev I will ever cast away. The Lord Jesus never casts away anybody who comes to Him in full acknowledgement of the fact that we need Jesus to be the Savior that, 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 uh, uh, that, our, that our condition puts us in, in great need of. We know ourselves to be those who have decided to set things up according to our own devices. We've determined to go in ways contrary to God's Word. We've decided to be our kings of little kingdoms of one. We want to do those things, but then the reality of sin hits home for us, and we see actually these things are contrary to life. These things are contrary to honoring the God who gives breath to my, to, in my mouth. He's the one I must turn to. He's the one in, in whom I can find hope. And instead of saying, I'm going to continue to be this person and put on a little bit of a religious show to hopefully make things look okay on the outside. Instead of that, I'm going to fall on my knees no matter who's watching and I'm going to say, Lord Jesus, I need you to be the one who saves me. I need you to be the one who takes me from going in this direction of destruction to going in this way of life. I know that by your power you can do that. And as we do that, we proceed in what Paul will refer to as godly grief which leads to repentance. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Godly grief which leads to repentance. You'll notice in this chapter there is grief. Samuel's angry. The Lord's regretting. By the end, verse 35, Samuel is mourning. There is sorrow in this chapter. 
none of that sorrow is located with Saul. Saul has one agenda. Make sure I'm still the guy up front that everybody respects. It's all about me. I'm going to build a monument to myself. I'm going to do what I want. Saul's agenda is a self-centered agenda. The sorrow that must be expressed on the part of a contrite heart is nowhere near Saul. It's found in others who, who, who had loved him apparently and wished that he wouldn't have gone in this way. It's grieved Samuel, but Saul's got nothing. And so as we put all these things together, we're just reminded that uh, Saul is not forgiven because he's committed some kind of sin that's beyond the pale of God's grace. There is no such thing. The Lord forgives. Uh, but at the same time, forgiveness in the Scriptures comes with that important little asterisk that says genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is ultimately what leads to the salvation promised to us through Christ. Not just lip service, not just religious service, but a true turning of the heart that says, I'm done, I, I am in need of grace, I recognize that I have gone in my own way, it grieves me, it angers me, all of these things, so Lord Jesus, come and save me. And we're helped by that lesson, helped in that lesson with, uh, with, with, with Saul and his, his contrariness. He's a, he's a bad example, but from a bad example we learn a good lesson, and so we're thankful for that. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that we would be encouraged by it this morning. The things that are important, may they remain in our hearts. Uh, we desire most of all to know the Lord Jesus and have a soft heart turned toward him. So please help us to that end. Uh, soften us. Uh, make us aware of areas where we do need to turn. Uh, we don't want to pretend that, that we're okay when really we need to find ourselves in a place of repentance. And, and it's so easy to have that happen, Lord. So we need you to work on our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.